This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. As we heard, scientists you know, believe the risk of our migratory birds returning home and bringing avian flu is low. Sick birds may not make it across the Pacific Ocean, a survival of the fittest kind of scenario. However, the death of a Florida dolphin and the die-off of seals from Maine due to avian flu does make researchers wary. Around this time of year, our colea, or golden plovers, fly home from Alaska. Avian flu has been found in poultry houses and in the wild there. Our citizen scientists involved in the Colea account have been on the lookout. We caught up with Susan Scott, president of the Hawaii Audubon Society, with an update on what they're seeing. We uh, caught up with her at the Oahu Cemetery just after a count. She was building on a tracking project started by Wally Johnson, an expert on the Colea migration. I am doing the overall statewide Colea count, which we've done now started our second, started our third year, actually. And so what we're doing today is looking for the birds that Wally banded and satellite tagged in March. And so we're seeing which of the 30 birds have come back. And so far, 22 have come back. And it's all really good news. It looks like they're carrying little backpacks with satellite signals. And some are not carrying the backpacks, so there's some a control group. And then there's some that are just banded and don't have any backpacks. But all, all three groups seem to be coming back about the same time, and they all look great. So the question was, do these interfere with their migration, or are the backpacks a little heavy for flying? But these birds have just flown 6,000 miles, 3,000 each way, with the little satellite transmitters, and they seem to be doing just great. They look healthy and plump and they're doing fine. So it's all good. Yeah, that is good news. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we've been... Uh, you know, reading, you know, for a good part of the year about the avian flu and how it's in the wildlife there, you know, over in Alaska. And so we just worry about the birds, you know, who's going to make it back um, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, how are you looking at that predicament, you know, and and I, I guess the count is more important than ever. Well, it is because we don't have that information. You know, we don't know how many spend winters here, how many don't migrate normally. So, when they come, when they leave, the interesting thing is we have some numbers this year that are really interesting. So in July, we had 58 birds return that people, our citizen scientists, have recorded. And in August, 1,067 birds returned that people reported. And the interesting thing about that is in the past, sort of the conventional wisdom was that they all come back in September. So, of course, we're still in the September count, and a lot more birds are coming back, and people are reporting them. But it's interesting to me that we have, you know, almost 1,100 birds reported in July and August. So that's really important. And it's a good question about the avian flu, because I don't know about that. And so we'll find that out when Wally comes back, and he'll be here October 10th. So we'll find out what, what he knows about the latest. Because I, I have read that shorebirds are affected, but I don't know if our shorebirds are affected. So far, not. Yeah, and it is a little disheartening, you know, to see it in other species, right? I mean, we just heard about right. the dolphins this week and then, you know, the seals earlier this summer. And so right. you, it's like, what's going on there? Yeah, well, these viruses are are interesting and they, they mutate. So so there's all kinds of, of worries about the variations and, of course, among our, our own selves right now, too. So who knows what's happening with that? If our birds do pick something up, you know, while they're over there, will they not make it across the Pacific right. back home? Right. Well, that's one good thing. I think about this Kalea count that is one of the Hawaii Audubon Society's projects is to start counting and keep track. So, of course, we're not going to count every single bird that comes to Hawaii, but we will have some records of how many come to Kapiolani Park over years. We hope to do at least 10 years, maybe longer. And then you can compare the numbers and see if there's an increase or decrease or if the population's stable. So if you had a sudden decrease, you'd start looking at the, the reasons why. But right now, we don't really have any long-term numbers. There's, no one's ever really done an account like this. People love the birds, and they're really happy to, to write about the little notes about the birds that live in their yard that come back. They name them. They've written some really great stories that I love. One woman was counting birds on one of the military bases, and she was looking at through her binoculars, and the MPs came by to 
to see if she was a spy, I guess. They said she, <laughs> they were they were very upset with her for what are you doing with these binoculars? But the story and they she explained and the the guys were fine with it. But I just really enjoyed reading the stories that people write, and that was part of the reason we did this is just to be able to share some of our Kalea stories because we all have some. And then because you are involved in the Audubon Society, you know, and we do get all kinds of birds that come through here. Um, I think when right. I was up at the uh, James Campbell um, Reserve up there, uh, they had a Canadian goose <laughs> oh, visit. Right. Right. So you oh. never know who's going to stop by. You might get a, just a wayward uh, a wayward guy that, that just... Exactly. And there's a peregrine falcon that's been seen here that got here on its own. So that's unusual, too. I mean, it's happened, it's happened over the years here and there, but... Yeah, they get blown here in storms, I think. And so, gosh, are you hearing anything else from the field, uh, you know, with your fellow birders out there, what they're seeing? Well, mostly we're really involved with Audubon also with the white turn count. And so the guy who's studying those said we're getting close to 3,000, and we started with two in 1961. So that population is doing really well in, in Honolulu. It's between... Hawaii and Pearl Harbor, and they are not really spreading out over Oahu or to the other islands. So they really love our city, which I think is really a, a great thing to say about adaptation. You know, the birds are learning to live with us. When you say so white turns, are we talking the fairy turns or manuku? Yeah, yeah manuku. Oh, turns, yeah. that's incredible. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And so, you know, they put the blue ribbons around the trunks in the city, and those are the ones that alert the arborist to a chick in the tree. And so there's a big volunteer group of that. It's another citizen science project that's fun, but also really valuable to find out if the birds are coming back and how many that we have. And so that's another good project. So. It is fun to see them flying, uh, you know, above the, the treetops there by Diamond yeah. Head, by Kapilani yeah. Park. Yeah, they're everywhere. They're, there's really a lot of them at the UH campus in Manoa. And so we just had a tour there, and there there were just so many people stopped pointing them out. So. And there's chicks in the trees there, so that's a good place to go look for them, too. So they're thriving just fine? They're thriving just fine, yes. Also, it's the same kind of thing, is we need to have volunteers help us monitor them so we know they're thriving, because otherwise if no one's counting, no one knows. And so how do people sign up for that? Same thing. It's the Hawaii Audubon website. It's Hawaii Audubon. If you Google that, you'll get the website. And there's a tab that says what we do, and all of those projects are under there. And each one has its own website that you can sign up for various chores and things to do and counts for the different species. Is there anything else you think would be important to underscore? One of the things that people ask me a lot is, how do I know I'm not counting the same bird over and over when you, like, say, walk through Capulani Park or El Moana Park? These birds are extraordinary in many ways, but one is that they're very faithful to one site. So if they have a space that they survived a winter, they will come back to that space. And if a lawnmower or a ball thrower or somebody comes to that space, they may fly, but they'll come back there. So if you're on one end of the park, you're not seeing the same bird you saw on the other end, like you would with minas or doves or the other species. So that's why we can do a count of Kalea. So that, that's a common question, because it does seem they do all look alike really, in the winter. And does the same yeah. go for, um, for Manuoku? The Manuoku are pretty faithful to their tree and so what we're the monitoring is whether the birds have a chick if they're sitting on an egg and you can often see that and so that's that's also a phone app that they can report what they see thank goodness for technology it is it's great and we're, we're working more on getting more phone apps because you have your phone in your hand and so trying to make it easy to report what you see and so that's that's happening all through audubon but yeah, yeah, anything that that will help us as we try and figure out where the avian flu is going or not and help out with the surveillance. Right. Well, I think the count is a big thing. If you all of a sudden don't see any birds or see only half of what you've seen the rest of the season, that's certainly a time to email one of us. And there's contact tabs on all these websites for the citizen science to let us know what's happening. That was Susan Scott, president of the Hawaii Audubon Society, talking to us about the Kolea's return. Look for info about the annual membership meeting in November, which will feature Kolea expert Wally Johnson. 3,000 miles over the sea, 96,000 in the sky. Kolea bird is coming to the island. Search of warmer winter in this place called
Our reality check today looks at our rail project in the next phase of construction, the most challenging to date. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri joins us. Good morning, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. Happy Aloha Friday. So, gosh, I happened to catch the rail, uh, the trains doing their their train um, testing uh, this weekend. Um, but yeah, your story today has to do with the utility uh, relocation. Right. So this is uh, forward looking the utility relocation along Dillingham, which, as a lot of listeners probably know, that is arguably the most critical stretch of the project uh, that's really caused a lot of the problems to date, frankly, is the inability to get past Dillingham and to get those utilities in some sort of an order where they can build uh, the rest of the rail line through downtown Kaka'ako and Ala Moana. So last month, uh, Hart announced that it had awarded uh, its latest contract attempt to uh, to to do that utility relocation, that contract went to Non Inc., which had a previous attempt at, at doing that utility relocation, which failed for a variety of reasons, uh, mostly on the, the city and heart. Uh, but that contract was five hundred million dollars. It was four hundred ninety six million dollars that Non uh, had bid and was awarded, and that was actually three percent less than what Hart had been estimating in its own most recent budget. So that was, you know, widely touted. It was a, it's a big win, and uh, Non is is moving forward with that contract. Now, what came out at a meeting yesterday with the Hart board was that the other uh, the challenger, uh, the other the other competitor for that contract for that 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 work along Dillingham, which was Hawaiian Dredging Construction Company, right, another local firm, they actually bid $900 million for that same work along Dillingham, which was kind of eyebrow-raising. I mean, typically, <laughs> yes. for, for, you know, projects, this is in, certainly in the hundreds of mil- millions of dollars, but even for projects of this kind of a size and scope, you don't typically see a $400 million difference in between bids, and we are talking about rail, right? So it's it's uh, it was something that did raise concern with the uh, the board chair Colleen Hanabusa, and what Hart's project director Nate Meddings told Hanabusa and the board was that look, Hawaiian Dredging did not spend as much time on their bid as Non did. Non has a lot of experience because they've already gone into the ground there and started working on the utilities there. They have a much better knowledge of what it's going to take and what it entails to do that. And so Hawaiian Dredging got a significantly lower score than non-Inc. Uh, but it does remain to be seen what we're, what's going to happen with change orders and the like uh, with bids that are that far apart. Oh, yes. Skeptics are like, what? <laughs> you know, low ball, uh, you know, lower than what we budgeted. And, and what's up with this, uh, this other bid that's, you know, was it just pie in the sky? Yeah, I mean it. It's and and Hart even acknowledges that you know what they're going to find in the ground is not what's going to be in the designs here, and it's going to involve uh, having to make changes, and that could also mean change orders and and cost increases. So, you know, it's just this these these utilities along Dillingham have been such a story unto themselves. Originally, back in 2012, this was uh, this work was measured in the tens of millions of dollars. Now it's well into the hundreds of millions of dollars. The the increase in cost for just this utility relocation has gone up like tenfold for for rail. When you you know dissect everything that's gone wrong there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've all been hearing that there's just not much wiggle room for a lot of these utilities, and we're talking sewer pipes and you know uh, uh, power lines, that kind of thing. So. I mean, we're all hoping that the price tag, oh, you know, won't be through the roof. But um, yeah, you, you kind of have to wonder with that with that difference, what's up with that? <laughs> but but thanks so much, Marcel. Sure thing. Thanks, Catherine. All right, we have been talking with reporter Marcel Honoré for today's reality check. You can read the full story. Visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Created with many hands from Hawaii's community, the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law Awakening explores the human connection to nature. Opens September 17th. This month, donate to HPR through Foodland's Give Aloha program. Shop at Foodland, Sack and Save, or Foodland Farms this month and choose Hawaii Public Radio at checkout. Your support of this nonprofit public radio station strengthens our ability to give you the music and news you rely on. For more info, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash givealoha. Mahalo for your support. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. cover many topics and issues on our show and periodically our listeners will share their thoughts and stories about them via our talkback line. Here's a voicemail we received when President uh, Joe Biden's uh, plan to forgive student loan debt hit the headlines. Hi, my name is Deanna from Kaneohe. I had a comment about the student loan forgiveness and the issues surrounding taking out student debt. I went to the University of Hawaii and graduated with about $30,000 in student loans, which with a bachelor's degree would have earned me less than a first-year public school teacher. So in order to avoid paying back my loan immediately, I just stayed in school and obtained my master's degree, which it only extended my debt. Now I'm about $50,000 in debt, but I am better able to pay that down. Thank you. And we got this voicemail after a reality check discussion about resort penguins. My name is Mark Sopland. I'm calling from Kilauea, Kauai. In the early 80s when I lived on Maui, I remember the penguins at that very same hotel that Chris Hemeter built. And they also had a dining area, a swan court where they had live swans swimming around. But the interesting thing about the penguins and the penguin bar is the penguins figured out how to get through the uh, drainage system and ended up on the golf course and nothing like a picture in Hawaii golfing with penguins in the background. All right, there you go. All right. And following our stories on polio in Hawaii, last week a listener from Hamakua reached out to share his experience. Bobby Kamara told us, like former Councilman Lee Waidu, he also contracted polio before a vaccine was developed. He was one of several children from the island of Hawaii who became permanently paralyzed. He said during the pandemic, he felt compelled to tell people why they should consider getting a vaccine for COVID. Well, I contracted polio in Honoka'a in late April 1955, and that's right after the vaccine was released on the East Coast. And, of course, the territory of Hawaii, I'm guessing, was not high on the list to receive polio vaccine doses. So I was unvaccinated. I got sick. Apparently, according to my parents, I almost died. I was in the hospital for four months. I went into Hilo Hospital on May 1st after being in Honoka'a for a week or so. And then at some point, I was flown to Oahu to the children's hospital there and came home in early September. So most of the most of the Honolulu stay was rehab. How did the polio affect you? So polio is a virus that affects places on your spinal cord where nerve impulses from your brain shoot down and out to power different muscle groups. So apparently I was almost totally paralyzed for about a week and my particular case is really spotty. My left arm is completely paralyzed and a bunch of other muscles, um, something in my right foot, my right tricep, my pet, my left elemu, a muscle in my palm of my hand, just seemingly random things. But the most noticeable was my arm. And of course, you know, growing up in school, you get teased, 
can't do certain things. My right leg, my right quadricep is paralyzed, so I can't run because if I tried to run and plant my right foot on the ground, I'd collapse. But I think the key in my rehab and my successful life since then was my mom. She refused to do anything for me. Like, you, boy, figure it out. You can do that. And so I'm pretty, um, I guess, outspoken these days. I don't, I don't like people who make excuses. And as far as the vaccine goes, or any vaccine, if people choose not to take them, to me, they're responsible for any outcome. And these days, you know, people who are anti-vaxxers or don't want COVID vaccines, it seems as though many of them are vaccinated for all kinds of stuff. You know, polio, mumps, measles, rubella, tetanus, whatever. And COVID just turned into this big political mess. So people who don't want COVID, I pick up my arm, my you know, my paralyzed arm, and I shake it at them and say, this is why you get a vaccine. And very often they don't have anything to say in reply. Yeah, I mean, this is your story. Yeah. We have to believe and understand that medical professionals are there to help us. I don't think any of them are evil or have malicious intent and would manufacture something that would purposefully cause us harm. The original vaccine for polio, when it was released, apparently had a number of people get sick and become paralyzed and die. But they figured out what the problem was and fixed it. And now, you know, polio was on the verge of being eradicated. Right, but it's making a comeback now in London, in the U.S. Yeah. Yep because and, people aren't vaccinated. Right. And and the, the you know, I think the threat is low comparatively, but it's still worrisome when you know that, like you said, we've just about eradicated it in the U.S. And and these are these are cropping up, from my understanding, like Orthodox communities um, in New York and in London where they don't, you know, they choose not to get vaccinated. Yeah. But, you know, people who are not vaccinated, and I, you know, I'm very respectful of people's religious beliefs, but you end up having a reservoir of people who can potentially be infected. And everything is great until you get infected, you get really sick, and then you get paralyzed. And then what do you do? And this is, in, in a lot of cases, permanent paralysis. Yep. Uh, and then there is also the post-polio syndrome that I've been learning about. Correct. And are you dealing with that too? Yep. You know, decades after the initial infection, 30, 40, 50 years afterwards, it's almost as though you get reinfected. But the way I think about it, when you have polio, you have muscles that are paralyzed, and then you have muscles that compensate for those that are paralyzed. And after a while, it seems that the compensating muscles say, okay, I've worked enough overtime, I quit. And so they stop doing what they were doing, and your other muscles go into decline. They get progressively weaker. And once that starts happening, they can't re-strengthen. You can't reverse it. And the curve downward varies. You know, yeah. it's always down, but sometimes it's super steep. And so right now, my right foot is considerably weaker than it was 10 years ago. And I'm, I'm, I'm extreme supinating now. I'm, you know, without a brace, which I now have to wear, I'd, I'd walk on the outside edge of my foot. So right now, I use a walking stick. You know, that just kind of helps with balance. To me, as remote as the possibility of, you know, catching polio is, go get vaccinated and go get vaccinated for all the other stuff that we get vaccinated for, too. That was one of our listeners, Bobby uh, Kamara, who reached out to us after hearing an interview that we did uh, last week with Lee Waidu, a polio survivor. Uh, Kamara came down with polio at age four, continues to live with polio. He's 71 and still living on the island of Hawaii. If you have any feedback for us, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line and record something for us, 792-8217. 
Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, with artworks and home furnishings that reflect the life and colors of the islands. Featuring Annie Sloan chalk paint, shipping available. magnolia-hawaii.com It's probably been a while since you heard it, but Tattoo's 2002 hit, All the Things She Said, turns 20 this week. What runs through your head when I say all the things she said running through my head? Oh my gosh, lesbian secrecy. <laughs> On the song's anniversary, we look back and ask, what happens when your self-discovery is based on an act? That's next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing medical, dental, and behavioral health care services island-wide. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. An exhibit opening soon at the Honolulu Museum of Art will feature over a million flowers, plants, and other materials. And that includes about 50,000 from our islands that are hand-strung by local volunteers. The garlands will hang from the ceiling in two of the museum's galleries. HPR's Jana Omai spoke with British artist Rebecca Louise Law about the inspiration behind her exhibit and hundreds of local volunteers that she's worked with to complete it. It has been an incredible experience being able to bring my art practice to this place where everyone is so much at one with flowers <laughs> and it, where the lay is much in a part of life and living. It has been one of the most amazing gifts to me as an artist that works with flowers. Could you first tell me about your exhibit and the inspiration behind it? Yes, so I'm an installation artist from Britain and I work with flowers as my material. And I have been working, creating installations around the world for, I started my practice in 2003. So this exhibition here is a combination of many exhibitions that I've had over the years. I reuse my material. So every single installation that I make in the world gets taken down, packaged up, and sent on to the next installation to be re-sculpted and made into a new artwork. So this installation is many, many flowers. There's about, I think it's over a million different individual flowers that I've collected since 2003. The artwork is called Awakening, and it's a progression on from artworks that I've made over the last few years, where I've looked at our relationship with nature as human beings. And growing up, did you always enjoy nature and flowers? Yes. <laughs> You'd have found me outdoors more than indoors. But um, yeah, the connection I had with the land and with the earth and with flowers and trees, um, for me, felt, felt normal. And I saw it as my playground. I saw nature as a material to use to create. And that was from a very early age. And as children, you no, know, my parents encouraged us to make things with nature too. What do you like about flowers? Why do you use a lot of them in your artwork? I had discovered installation art and the art where the viewer is as much a part of the artwork as the material in the artwork. And I found flowers, once you preserved them and dried them, would give you a really beautiful palette of colors. And what has it been like to work with a lot of the, the flowers from Hawaii? Um, is there anything unique or different or special that you've, you've noticed about them? Well, I love the history and the symbolism of the flowers here. And I love the fact that the stories that come with each seed and each flower are so rich and, and they're just incredible. And, and also how the stories have changed over the years. But I think um, 
what I've been blown away by is actually the seeds and the seed pods. And it, it just brings this other kind of layer. So I've, I've just loved um, how, can, how much you have here, actually. And you don't even have to pick. You can just forage from the floor. We had permission from the botanical gardens here to take a few elements and add them to the artwork. And also, uh, what has it been like to work with the different community groups and the local volunteers here um, who are, you know, hand-stringing all of the flowers? Well, they are incredible. I mean, we've never had to, um, like, we've never had it so easy in terms of explaining. <laughs> and everyone understands immediately. And some, um, some people have said, you know, this is aloha, this is how we live and know how we love and um, we've not had any mistakes apart from one garland and string was was wired not correctly but we've we've never had it where every single one is pretty much perfect uh, with little instruction and explaining uh, so it's it's been amazing um, and the community and the people here just love celebrating life and each other so it's been a, a real blessing to bring people together and, and allow that to happen which is in their nature anyway and what do you hope that people learn or get um, when viewing your exhibit well with this artwork um, we have actually combined the ocean debris just a tiny bit into it because it's a site-specific installation, and it always is, I create installations which are about what's happening locally. And sadly, I just felt really drawn to talking about the issue of the ocean debris that's, that's coming to the beaches here. And it is from the rest of the world. It's not a problem which is just about here. Um, this is happening everywhere. But it's a cool, this artwork is a call for the viewer to think about how we live and what do we need and the excess and just simplifying life a little bit more and being conscious and living responsibly and looking after not just the, the earth but each other. And so this is the first time that you're using this type of ocean debris plastic in your installations, right? Yes, and it's really jarring <laughs> to even bring anything like that into one of my artworks. So it's very subtle. You know, it's, it's just one of those things where I've been looking at the relationship we have as human beings with this earth for a long time in terms of my life. I was so upset by what I saw on the beaches here and it felt so, so um, physical and wrong. But then I felt like actually there are very small things that we can all change as individuals to slow down the amount of waste we have in this world. And it's just by the way we live. What, what should people expect when they first see the exhibit? It's a lot of flowers. But if anyone is used to going into the jungles or the forests or on a hike up into some kind of, to find a waterfall, you'll know what it feels like to be surrounded by nature. This is very different in the sense that you get that same physical experience, but it's not green. It's preserved flora, but I think the viewer will feel that they're in a moment with nature um, and hopefully they will be able to have their own emotional response to that. Um, and it, it often will um, provoke memories, and, and often with people it will provoke childhood memories of natural materials. They'll find things that they know. Um, and it may be that it, they just get bathed in a certain color as they walk through one, one of the areas. Um, but it's a journey through nature. And this is your second time in Hawaii, right? Yes, I came to see the space a year ago. 
How has it been being here for a longer period of time? Well, I've been working, so I've been busy. <laughs> and then it's catching those moments to really connect to the island. Um, my husband and my son are here, so we're here as a family. And my son is in pre-K whilst we're working. And we've actually fallen in love in our spare time with a beach. And on the first day that we actually went out to the beach, um, we all were just swimming and, and there was a turtle that was just right next to us. And it was just amazing. So do you think you'll be back? I'd love to be. I'd love to be. Um, I feel. I honestly feel like my work's come home, in terms of the lay, and just love showing love through flowers is what my work's about, and that connection that we have to nature. Um, so yeah, I would love to come back. That was British artist Rebecca Louise Law talking with HBR's Jaina Omaye about her new exhibit. It opens to the public on September 17th at the Honolulu Museum of Art. And FYI, Honma is an underwriter of HBR. It wasn't long after Professor Keola Donaghy took over the University of Hawaii at Maui's Institute of Hawaiian Music that he started to dream big. He applied for a whopping $2.5 million in grant funding from the U.S. Department of Education for a range of programs, which included the opportunity to offer Hawaiian music instruction to students on Molokai. It's hard to get $2 million for anything, let alone the arts, but uh, Donaghy has uh, had an ace in his pocket. Uh, Stefan Fox, a cultural psychologist and ethnomusicologist with UH, who investigates and quantifies how traditional music benefits mental and uh, spiritual well-being. With the money in hand and Fox's analytical support backing him, uh, Donaghy set off to Molokai. But the program was only one semester uh, in when a new variable was added to the equation, COVID-19. The pandemic put both uh, Donaghy's commitment and Fox's theories to the test. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with them about the experience. You know, it was a spirit boosting thing. You know, people recognized how isolated they are. You know, and I know from experience, you know, your your travel options and shipping options on Molokai are very limited. You know, there's times when the uh, the young brother's vessel can't even come into the harbor. So you wonder if you know you're going to have bread to to make your your children's sandwiches the next week. The only planes that were operating at the time that we were conducting it were these single seat nine-seat aircrafts uh, that would sometimes get canceled too. You know, I had it happen to me a couple times. So, you know, the amount of isolation they already experienced was just exacerbated by COVID. You know, now you can't even leave the island. You know, you have to get, even for us, when we started back traveling to Molokai, we had to get permission of our mayor. For every trip, we had to contact their office and get him to approve our traveling to the island. It was... You know, it was stressful, but, you know, so the students made it clear. It's like, you know, we, we need this. You know, we need this contact. We need to know that, you know, there are people outside of our island that care about what's going on with us. You know, it was, and for me, the same way. I mean, I think, you know, emotionally, psychologically, it helped me to, to be making that trip and maintaining contact with the folks and, you know, appreciating what they were going through and what, how our program was contributing to their their mental well-being. So that was pretty joyful, but also difficult because we were using the Molokai Community Health Center, you know, an open lanai. We're all having to, you know, wear masks and everything. But uh, spring of last year, 2021, we were able to bring them over two consecutive weekends in smaller groups uh, and did all the recording that was necessary for them to to complete their their capstone project, which is, you know, recording a CD. Two months ago, you know, we won a Nahuku Hanohano Award for it. 
it was really unexpected. You know, there were some really excellent recordings in that category, and we really didn't expect to win. And I, Stefan and I were in Portugal that that during that time, so I'm watching on my computer, and holy mackerel, we actually won. And so we were presenting about that cohort, yeah. about that experience of COVID, and how with my research, my end of it, it wasn't like people got better psychologically, but most of the world, like 80% of the world, was showing symptoms of depression and or anxiety. And those those symptoms were not uh, not showing up. So what, they didn't really go up, but they also didn't crash out like everybody else did. So you know, the, the implication is that maybe IHM and this, this traditional musical practice served as a, a resource, as a, a buffer to prevent the bad psychological effects. When you think of everything that went right and all the ways people doubled down and recommitted to this process, when you think of, one, the difficulty in getting funding for the arts to begin with, and then the logistical hurdles to bringing these resources to rural communities, do you anticipate that we we are overlooking true artistic talent in rural areas because we don't have the funding or the logistical resources to spotlight those talents? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, in general, the multiple effects of arts uh, are not something that culturally the U.S. is really valuing right now. Uh, so we have a lot of people who don't have the funding, they don't have the access to performance spaces or recording. Uh, and particularly in Hawaii, we have so many people who are geographically isolated. And so that's kind of one of the things that we hope that we can do is to contribute to the knowledge base of, yeah, arts are not just like something superfluous that we can do if we want and, and leave out if we want to. Yeah. Uh, so part of, you know, the app, I, I wrote the grant application, and I think one of the things that really sold it, you know, to the funders at, at USDOE was a section that Stefan contributed that talked about, you know, he can quantify these benefits in a way that I don't know if anyone else has done before, showing that particularly with, you know, indigenous cultures like this, that participation in performing arts actually has a proven benefit that he can quantify. If we had not had that element, I question whether or not we would have gotten the grant if we had just gone with the, you know, touchy-feely, qualitative kind of approach and not had the, you know, the numbers to back it up. I think it would have been a harder sell to the, the funders. Music plays a role in, in many people's lives, whether or not they are professional musicians. Yeah. Do you think that this buffering, the scaffolding that was put in place by the students' participation in music was particular to Hawaiian music, or would we have seen this with other types of music as well? That's the question I've been asked a lot in the course of the doctorate and everything else. Okay, so with traditional musics, there are a couple of elements that are not necessarily present in, let's say, um, classical music, not of your culture. Uh, so one aspect is connection with other people of your ethnic group, maybe. Um, another is your identity. So for, let's say, a person of Hawaiian ancestry who is playing Hawaiian music, well, the language may be an important part. The content uh, shows a particular worldview. Uh, so these are all things that work together. So identity, cultural knowledge, and connectedness are the main factors that I identified, you know, in do doing my research. Um, as being particularly important in traditional arts. Mm -hmm. And they're a little bit, it's a little bit different if you're talking about other, other art forms. You know, somebody may have a strong identity as a musician, but it may not really deeply connect with who they are. Can you describe kind of the, the range of experiences or interests that students in this program have? What's your average student like? There is no such thing. You know, say for, for Moloka'i, um, the youngest student we had was a homeschooled young lady who was only 17 at the time. 
uh, the eldest oldest person in the class was about 65 or 66 and everything in between. It's a challenge to try to to make sure that everybody's getting something out of it, you know, what they need or want to get out of the program. But also, you know, the students help each other out a lot. For this most recent album, students either created an original work or revisited an old song, provided an interpretation of an old song that had to do with Molokai. Can you provide some examples of what your students did to bring their own vision to these songs? Well, one of the different elements of the Molokai students is most of them had had some significant Hawaiian language background. So they weren't starting off. Many of our students here, you know, they have to go into first year Hawaiian and learn the fundamentals. There were some whose language was excellent. Uh, so that gave us a lot to work with. I believe seven of the eight uh, recordings we did were originals because the students had very strong ideas. So there was one young lady in the program who wanted to write a song for this area on the North shore of Moloka'i called Mo'umumi. And it's where, you know, along the North shore, it's like one of the first real beaches on the North shore. Once, you know, you've come down from the cliff area and, you know, we were struggling a little bit with it. And then, you know, I took her and we, I guided her on a dive into the newspapers from the 1800s. And we found a newspaper story. It was an account by a ship captain who was sailing past that area and describing the features of the beach and the rocks and everything that he was, you know, he was seeing as he drove past, Mo drove, <laughs> as he sailed past Mo'umomi. And we found some terms that I don't usually don't hear, but I'm like, we need to build, bring these things into the song because, you know, they're, a lot of times with Malay, you'll get, um, you know, particularly with an inexperienced composer, you'll get some kind of generic terms like for a beach, like kahakai. And we found a reference to a kaiku ono, which is, it's not quite a full bay, but just kind of this soft crescent shape of the beach. So we were able to bring that into the Malay. So that's part of the process is, you know, you you really need, to, you know, if you're going to write a song about a place, you really need to know that place, you know, any kind of cultural significance, wind names, rain names, sea names, you know, all those things are elements that you want to include in your, your composition. I think that's a really unique thing about Hawaiian music uh, is the emphasis on people and places and that these really inform people's identity. And I think that's a big thing that makes Hawaiian music mm -hmm. so psychologically potent is that it has these, these elements, this, like this deep sense of culture and tradition mm -hmm. and heritage and genealogy. You don't see that in very many musical systems. Yeah. You know, one young lady, her, she recorded a song that her sister wrote about, um, I think it was a great, great uncle whose parents living on Molokai contracted Hansen's disease and were sent to Kalaupapa. But at the time, they would not, not allow children there. So he ended up being sent to Honolulu to be raised by, I forget if it was another family member or somebody who wasn't even family. And it wasn't until he was old enough to go back that he chose to live in Kalaupapa to take care of his parents uh, and the other patients there and eventually contracted Hansen's himself and died of it. So she didn't find out the backstory until the night that we were performing, you know, doing the CD release. And she's singing the song beautifully with just waterfalls coming out of her eyes, you know, really realizing the depth and the full story behind what she sang. <laughs> Having seen the students connect with 
where they live in that way and with ancestors and I could go on and on. Every song has a story behind it like that. I get really, you know, misty when I, I start thinking about it. I was able to be part of that process. That's such an example about talent that we're missing out on. You know, Molokai doesn't have the tourist flow and mm -hmm. that's probably a good thing, but it means that those people yeah. are not really going to be heard unless something like this is done. Beautiful. That was Stefan Fox and Keola Donaghy with the UH Maui Campus's Institute of Hawaiian Music. They were talking about their award-winning album produced with students on Molokai during the pandemic. We'll have links to find out more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we continue to gaze over the tourist landscape and the hot spots here on Oahu. Share your ideas, your frustrations. Call us, 808-792-8217. Post on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the Conversation page of the HPR website. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. John DeMello provided our backyard Oli and our Gypsy Jazz theme music thanks to Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us Monday. Pick up the conversation. 